With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 4th, 2021. The Impeach Him Today edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C., Emily Bazelon is on vacation, so she's not here. Instead, Andre Valdez, who is now the Senior Vice President of Audience Strategy at The Atlantic, joins us from, from Texas, probably, right? That's correct. Hello, and congratulations on your new job. Thank you. John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning and Face the Nation, and also The Atlantic, joins <laughs> us from somewhere. Hello, John. <laughs> Hello, David. Can I ask you, is that your, a new windscreen on your microphone? It looks like a dissipated eggplant. Has it always been that? It's always been a dissipated eggplant. Uh, maybe it's the light in the room or something. It's this lovely color of purple for those of you in the listening audience. If I were, if I were president, you know what my Secret Service code name would be? Dissipated eggplant. Yeah. This week, we will talk about Andrew Cuomo, who is still somehow the governor of New York, despite a damning, depressing report revealing that he harassed recently harassed or sexually assaulted about a dozen women while he's been governor of new york it's just stunning then the biden administration has restored or sustained the COVID inspired federal eviction moratorium after a progressive pressure campaign is that a good thing how long will it last and then vaccines vaccine mandates masking mandates everyone's got a mandate we're going to talk about mandate week here at the GabFest. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. At the time of taping on Thursday morning, Andrew Cuomo remains governor of New York. He is holed up in the governor's mansion, apparently with his dog. And you have to hand something to him. The guy has a brassiness and a imperturbability in the face of his own wickedness that is really hard to find outside of the sociopathic wing of a local prison. But it's just incredible after the report that Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, compiled this devastating report on his many, many, many acts of sexual harassment of assault, some of which had already been reported in the media many months ago and some new, including the absolutely gory, gruesome tales of a trooper who was assigned to Cuomo's detail at his own request, who was subjected to just absolutely incredible, terrible behavior at Cuomo's hands. So, Andrea, he remains in office. How can it be that he remains in office, given what has now been revealed and confirmed, reported well by the AG? That's a good question. And I mean, first off, what a difference a year makes in the Cuomo saga, just thinking back to last year and how he was America's governor and just a really different uh, sheen on the whole situation now that we have all of this information out of the report and um, the various other scandals that are embroiling his administration. He's strongly denied all of these claims and he said he won't be distracted by them. And so this really obviously feels as though there's a strong signal that he's not going to resign. But I just can't see how you survive sexual harassment allegations from 11 women one of them, as you said, this state trooper that was on his security detail. 
And he's had both leaders of the state legislature legislature ask him to resign and every member of New York's Democratic congressional delegation. He's also been called on to resign by Speaker Pelosi, by President Biden. So it's looking, based on what he said, as though he does not plan to resign, though I suppose impeachment proceedings are probably in the offing at this point. The Assembly Speaker is, you know, looking as though he's going to proceed with possible impeachment. And even in the his own, I suppose, best case scenario, even if he's able to survive all of this and not be impeached and not have to resign, it's not as though he's going to probably survive any sort of primary and get the fourth term that I think he's coveted and, and been going after. So I'm not sure what the next step for him here is, but it seems as though he's going to maintain uh, the denials and, as he said, not be distracted. So, John, the behavior detailed by James in this report and also uncovered in reporting and most of all revealed by the victims of Cuomo's harassment who went public months and months ago with with stories of what he had done to them. These are not iffy cases. These are not like, oh, on the margin, like I made a remark that was somewhat misunderstood or, you know, I'm I'm a I'm I'm just an affectionate person. I mean, although Cuomo is certainly doing the I'm an affectionate person and excuse. These are kind of extremely well-documented, contemporaneously documented and, and recorded acts of harassment and assault and retaliation. I mean, like what's almost as unsettling as his grotesque behavior towards women is the ways in which he sought to suppress allegations and smear the people making allegations against him. I mean, this is not, this is not a marginal case the way some might say that Al Franken was a marginal case. Right. And starting with where you ended, the attacks on the accusers, the attempts to dig up dirt on the accusers and then send that dirt out to journalists was one act. And then the second was attempts to knock the uh, attorney general and others pursuing the investigation. So that's that's a compounding set of crimes. But back to your point about I'm an affectionate person, that was part of Cuomo's defense. And in doing in mounting his defense, he he uh, produced these pictures of uh, various officials kissing various other officials in in the sort of affectionate hello, how are you kind of way. I mean, obviously, that's a kind of distraction, right? Distract against the charges from me and, and say everybody does it. But if you're minting a distraction, you usually don't want to create one that underlines the central claim of the case from the attorney general, <laughs> which in this case is he totally misunderstands the power dynamics of the of the relation of these incidents. So in other words, it's not just the behavior, which, as you point out, is extremely creepy and is being investigated by a variety of district attorneys to see if there was criminal activity. But it's also because he was doing it to subordinates, people who worked for him, people whose detail he asked, you know, who's, who over whom he had explicit and implicit power in a workplace environment. And the fact that he missed that in his defense only adds more evidence to the case against him. So, Andrea, the investigation was clearly something Cuomo wanted as a delaying tactic, hoping this would blow things over and people would forget it. But this report is not blow overable, is it? Do you think there's any chance he gets away without an impeachment? I mean, the, the, the thing that surprised me, sorry, I'm wandering here, but the thing that surprised me was reading about the impeachment process. And you had these New York State Assembly members who maybe are still trying to protect Cuomo, who are saying, oh, we can't get this started now for another month or more. And it, it feels like, why can't you get it? What It's been forever. Why can't you get this started tomorrow, get this going and move really quickly? 
they're talking like, oh, we won't be able to, you know, vote on this until until the end of the year. Well, I feel like hasn't some of the reporting suggested that things have been the pace has been quickening as of late? Is that right, John? Yeah, I think you're right. Or and or a month is actually quite quick relative to they're not just investigating this stuff. They're investigating his book deal. They're investigating the nursing home. But, uh, but why deaths. is it quite quick? There's an AG report that's 165 pages long. They've got like 100 some people on the record talking about it. Like they can't they start it tomorrow? I could get it. They just oh, call me. I'll I, get it started. I don't. <laughs> is the month deadline a starting deadline or how long it will take deadline? I think it's oh, a okay. how long it'll take. I, think I thought it was a how long, how long to start. Yeah. I, that was No, I think there's basically they're going to wait this weekend, see if he climbs down. He won't. Then they'll start initiating proceedings, I think, on Monday or at least talking about the path forward on Monday. And to your question and to kind of the last point that John was talking about, these allegations in the aggregate, when you look at them, they suggest a pattern of behavior, which when we talk about sexual harassment, sexual assault cases and claims, that's typically what we're looking for is patterns of behavior. And so you see in these allegations continued patterns of behavior where it's it's things that most women, I imagine, most there's probably a lot of people out there, you know, who are listening right now who've experienced just these, you know, tiny little touches or something that makes you feel slightly uncomfortable. And maybe as a one off, you doubt yourself, you question yourself, maybe you feel a little gaslit. But in the aggregate, you begin to realize that it is making you uncomfortable. And I think that it's and then in this situation, what exacerbates it is there's the power differential, right? As you talked about. I do think that it's interesting that we are being forced to have this conversation around this particular, you know, set of allegations around Cuomo, because I think it forces us to really talk about these kinds of behaviors and relearn or unlearn the bounds of proprietary, of propriety. And what I think some people once upon a time might have said, oh, that's just, you know, typical behavior that you might see somewhere. And, and now we can talk about that and say, maybe it's not typical. In fact, maybe it makes people feel uncomfortable and we shouldn't do it. Do you guys think that somebody who has Cuomo's grotesque behaviors could start a career like this, start, a, start this pattern today as a young person and be able to carry it through? I can see how he, once he reached a certain level of power in the 90s, and those, those behaviors were already locked in, that it was going to be hard to unseat him. He was very well protected, extremely powerful. He could kind of get away with it for a very long time once it was established. But do you think if you're if you're a young Andrew Cuomo in 2021 that you could be that gross and handsy and 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 lascivious with your colleagues and with your underlings and you could have as successful a career as he's had? I sort of feel like there's a group of people who were who were able to do it because they grew up in a different era and reached a certain level of power and now you couldn't do that. I don't think you'd want to do that now because, like I said, I think we've learned – well, I mean, but I think we've learned that, again, the boundaries of what is acceptable, socially acceptable behavior that probably always existed but haven't been discussed because people – just dealt with it or said it's a boys club and it's just what you have. It's the price of entry to this boys club for a woman. I think that those conversations have shifted dramatically even in the last, you know, couple of years since the Me Too movement in 2018. I think that's all true. Uh, But I think it also, the answer to your question, David, depends on the party you're in and your skill level. So, you know, Matt Gates in a previous Republican party, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, Matt Gates would be gone. He right. would have been forced. Right. To, he would have been forced right. to resign. It would have been, you know, Mark Foley or 
uh, what was the New York congressman who took his shirt off, whose name I can't remember from the moment, but they would have been gone because leadership would have said, sorry, you're out of here. Why can't leadership do that? Well, <clears throat> they may have fellow feeling for Matt Gates, or Matt Gates may have found his own route to the base that gives him a certain celebrity in his party, and therefore it's a real headache for the leadership to mess with him because you're able to establish your own swack by going on TV and and creating a stir and great and building a constituency that then makes you somewhat powerful. And that certainly exists in the Republican Party. And that's part of your skill level. If you're an incredibly compelling politician who has a following behind you, we've seen instances in which people with a following behind them have power. Now, again, it goes back to what party. Al Franken had an incredible following behind him. And he was bounced Almost immediately, part of that was the pressure that was put on him by the party, and then part of it was that he felt the pressure. It, there is much more of a self-regulating arm of the Democratic Party than the Republican Party at the moment. Right. I mean, I can think of another leading New York politician who's been credibly accused of harassing, assaulting a dozen women, who is, in fact, the leading figure in the Republican Party. I mean, Donald Trump did what Cuomo's accused of and worse, according to many reports, and yet there were reasons to for the people to overlook that especially when they came out four days before or whenever the abc report came out so close to the election and it was it became a rallying moment rather than a chance to eject him so cuomo supporters seem to be saying oh he's going to he's doing the northam which is like the ralph northam the governor of virginia has survived allegations were not not at all similar kinds of allegations but he survived revelations about racist acts he committed as a much younger man and has remained a governor and pretty popular governor of Virginia. How is this different, John? Well, as you say, the allegations aren't while you're in office. That's the one thing. They were quite a long time ago. He had a lieutenant governor who got into his own issues, which distracted in the moment from him. He came from a state, Virginia, that has a regrettable history with race that it's still stumbling over. Um, and therefore, he wasn't a super outlier in in the community that he was uh, a part of. And there wasn't, you know, there weren't people you could interview on TV. It wasn't a story that had, in addition to things not happening that had happened in the office, there wasn't, there wasn't extra energy to add to it in the way that in this case it was. And he didn't get abandoned in the holy and I mean, the big cheese stands alone here. Cuomo is completely abandoned. And you didn't see that so much in the in the Northam case. Andrea, I want you as a Texan to do a little Texas-New York comparison to close us out. So the last three governors of New York, Andrew Cuomo, David Patterson, Elliot Spitzer, will have left office in total disgrace. And in Texas, also a one, huge one-party state, effectively, or one party at the gubernatorial level for now, with a ton of corruption within the state, with a ton of money in the state, your Republican governors have not left office in as much disgrace. Is that that the Republican Party protects its its governors better than the Democratic Party is protecting its governors? Is it just coincidence that, that these three Democrats happen to have been defenestrated? I suppose the one thing that I can say about Texas is that, yes, our Attorney General Ken Paxton is under indictment. So it's not as though it's all completely roses over here. I think that it's probably a matter of just the stranglehold that Republicans have within Texas. The governor, so Governor Abbott has been, uh, 
you know, governor since, let's see, 2012. Is that right? Gosh, I'm testing my own knowledge here. And then before that, uh, Governor Perry was the longest serving governor um, in Texas history. And both of them in that position, the governor typically here in Texas is a pretty weak position. But because they've been governor for so long, you know, the governor appoints uh, so many heads of administrations and it makes them quite powerful because they're in office long enough to basically end up appointing, you know, 2000 plus appointees across the state, uh, which means that they have a lot of power, even it's even though it's a soft uh, governor state. And so I think that between that, between the lieutenant governor, you know, basically every state elected official in Texas, both of our uh, senators, uh, you know, a good majority of our representatives, uh, the state house, it all is Republican, um, even though the cities are all blue. I just think that having that much power in one party makes it really hard for the Democrats to get a stranglehold. And then on top of that, the politics of Texas here, as far as, you know, governors go, Democrats just haven't been able to put up a very good uh, Democratic candidate in years. The best one that kind of was last ran was Wendy Davis, and she lost in a huge route. So I think it's all those together. I get. I guess I was asking a different question, which is, Democrats are losing. Democrats who control the state of New York are losing their governors to scandal after scandal after scandal. Why, or maybe why is that happening, John? Why is that happening? You you've certainly studied the Spitzer scandal. Why? Why is it? Why are New Yorkers electing pigs? Yeah, is, is that your question? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. And by the way, you could just uh, ascribe it to one party, right? Because Spitzer and Cuomo are from the same party. Um, and David Patterson, David Patterson was no picnic. Yeah, I, um, I, I don't know. Maybe there's something uh, rotten in, in New Amsterdam. This episode of The Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After insisting, insisting that it was constitutionally barred from extending the federal eviction moratorium that the CDC put in, 
that has been in place almost since the start of COVID. The Biden administration and the CDC of the Biden administration caved, caved, I don't want to use that word. Uh, what's the word that's not caved? I'll just say caved. Caved yeah. to pressure from progressives, <laughs> notably Rep. Corey Bush, who slept out on the Capitol steps for four nights and have extended the federal eviction moratorium, which covers on the order of 30 million renters in the U.S. till October in the 80 percent of the country that's still experiencing a surge in COVID, the Delta surge in COVID. So, John, the Biden administration has said, even in as it extended this, that it is probably not constitutional to extend it. Why? Why is that? And why are they saying that? Well, right. I mean, the president himself said in extending it, you know, that's probably that constitutional scholars didn't agree and that uh, and that um, it probably would get knocked down, but that in the interim, some people would be saved. And um, I mean, there's a lot to discuss here. First of all, just that we're talking about, you know, six to seven and a half million people who are would be in trouble here. And they are, you know, average income around four. 40, 30, 35 to 40 thousand dollars a year. So that's the group of people who are in danger of being evicted. It's a it's a huge problem. Um, the Supreme Court looked at the Public Health Services Act and decided the CDC didn't have the legal authority. That's what Biden is saying when he says that the constitutional scholars say that this, the authority doesn't exist. He had a loophole, it seems to me, which is that Brett Kavanaugh said, you don't have the authority, but you can have a little more time Go get the authority from Congress, but you can have a little more time while this money gets dispersed. There's been a huge screw up in getting the money out the door. So there are two things. There's the moratorium and then there's a bunch of money that was funded to help uh, landlords and renters. And that money has been incredibly slow getting out the door of about the 46 billion that's been allocated. I think about only 3 billion has gone out. 36 of the 400 counties that could give the money have um given over half of it. So that's only 36 of 400. So it's been a disaster in terms of getting the money out the door. And Kavanaugh said you can allow that to take place while this moratorium goes on for a little longer. Biden, it seems to me, could have said, hey, we're going to take him up on that. The money hasn't gone out the door, so we think it's worth extending. Instead, he basically said the ends justify the means, which after four years of talking about norms and keeping clear standards regardless of the benefit of the ends, he basically said the ends justify the means and we can do what we want to do, which was, you know, something people used to get really exercised about over the last four years. I realize there's a difference, but still one of the things we used to talk about in the Trump administration was that standards were worth maintaining for their own sake. And in this case, he's he's blowing through them as Trump did. And to be fair, as previous presidents did as well. Andrea, it feels like there are a bunch of different issues John has touched on. One is that there's this new Supreme Court interpretation of the Constitution, which is quite restrictive about the, the powers it's allowing Congress to delegate to the CDC or to, to, to the federal government. It's quite restrictive about saying what it is that the federal government, the executive branch, can do with its authority. And so that's that's one issue. And so that when when Biden is talking about that, well, the constitutional scholars say they can't do it. It is true that this this Supreme Court does not believe the CDC has the power to do this. But previous Supreme Courts and previous and many other judges do believe that the CDC would have the power to do this. So this is a, a matter of constitutional dispute where the right wing interpretation has trumped. And then you have this other piece of it, which is which John is touching on, which is this truly tragic 
failure of local governments, for the most part, to disburse this $46 billion that has been allocated to help landlords and renters. And that, that where did that failure come from? Why has there been such an incredible sloth at getting that money out the door? Well, to your first point about the Supreme Court and, you know, its, its ruling and kind of how, uh, you know, it's a little bit tying the hands of the administration, it just speaks to the power that the Supreme Court has and in a Supreme Court that, you know, now has six conservative justices. Um, it's it, between, between that and a Congress that feels as though it moves at a pretty glacial speed. It seems as though acting quickly in situations where there's an emergency feels all the more impossible. And that part is, I think, distressing. So that's the one piece of it is from a political standpoint, can't move things to Congress can't go to the courts and, you know, have them help you move things through if you're the Biden administration. And, you know, if you're the executive branch, you can only do so much because these things might be challenged in one of these two places, which ends up slowing it all down. And then you can't get um, meaningful legislation passed for people. To the other piece of it, as far as, you know, just what a tragedy this is for the people who are facing eviction. The reason the CDC is involved at all in the first place is because they have cited this as a public health concern. There's been studies that have found that when the moratoria on evictions have been lifted, that there are spikes in caseloads um, in those places because it forces people to go to crowded spaces, uh, live in, you know, shelters or live with family members. And then all of a sudden you have more people that are being exposed. And it, what makes it even worse in this particular moment is we're looking at this extraordinarily transmissible Delta variant. And so we have found that people who even are vaccinated, they can have breakthrough cases or, you know, they might have viral loads that are um, just as high as uh, unvaccinated people, which, you know, just it exacerbates this public health concern. And then, you know, on top of all of that, uh, you have the people who are being affected or, or that are typically in the situation where they're finding themselves uh, about to be evicted. They live in um, either low-income places or they're black and brown people or they live in rural areas. And, you know, studies have found that right now those are the hotspots for uh, the Delta variant really ravaging communities. So it's a confluence of really terrible variables all coming together at once. Remember when we had Jason Furman on in in April, in the middle of the pandemic, and we were trying to talk through what the economic um, kind of the best ways to get money out the door and to whom? He said something that seemed um, surprising at the time, which was that the unemployment system, as rickety as it is, as a way to use um, unemployment insurance benefits as a way to get money to people, even though it was wasn't as good as the system in Europe, the reason it was the best system was it was the best available. There was a structure that existed to get checks to people, and everybody kind of knew how that system existed, even though it wasn't a perfectly efficient one. It seems to me one of the problems in, in, in assessing the blame, and this is important because it's not just for why did this eviction moratorium and the, and the money for renters and landlords not get out the door, but it's like we're going to have emergencies in the future, and coming up with quick solutions that work is not unimportant. And one of the things that seems to me to be uh, one of the issues is that basically there was they had to build the structure and the structure was built differently in all kinds of different states. You have 25 states in which Republicans have total control. And so they are going to be at policy odds with the Democratic administration. And so it's just a you've got to build the plane while you're flying it, to use the cliche. So you have the problems there and then you have basically buck passing between the president's Supreme Court and Congress on the question of the moratorium in this most recent week, which also 
represents kind of structural flaws as they were all saying it's somebody else's job to do here. We, well, the buck passing, there should be more buck passing. That would be good. <laughs> this, is, this is an example of what we talked about last week, the time tax, which is that one of the things that's happened is that in local, that these local governments and state governments that have been tasked with administering this $50 billion of, of rental assistance, they've created systems and they're onerous and complicated and paperwork heavy and daunting. And so it is no surprise that the uptake has been bad or that it's taken a long time for it to get in place because it's complicated. I, Matt Iglesias, who is a source, endless font of fun, interesting ideas, had a, a throwaway tweet this week where he said, maybe we should set up a system where everyone gets paid $1 a year by the federal government and is in a system so that if we have emergencies, then everyone can quickly, they just have everyone's name on file. They can just like start paying people the $500 a month they need to pay them instead of the $1. And that would be better system than what we've got, because now it's just so complicated to get people registered. It's also a tech problem. I mean, it's really distressing that in a country that has some of the best tech companies in the world that we can't, in our federal government, hire some of the best you know tech employees to help solve solve this and make these websites not so dysfunctional and make them easy to access on your phone if you don't have access to easy access to a computer. That, to my mind, it's really unfortunate that we can't uh, attract some of the best tech talent to the federal government to help solve some of these issues. So let's talk about the progressives who really pushed this. This was something the Biden administration didn't really want to do. They felt they were legally barred for the reasons we discussed. But there was a big push from the left of the, the party. And as I said, from Cori Bush, perhaps most prominently, does this represent, John, some uh, efflorescence of progressive power? Or we've been this the same week, we've been reading a stories about how actually the progressives have generally been shunted aside by the Biden Democrats, that the Biden's more uh, incrementalist, less less intense policies seem to be triumphing. Well, you've got two different things happening. There's the electoral question of whether progressives have the power that they do. Um, and this week we saw that uh, Chantel Brown's win in Ohio suggested that the Biden Democrats. She was more of a Biden Democrat than Nina Turner, who was running in that race, who was Bernie Sanders's national co-chair, that that's the argument for the Biden Democrats, that they're that they do better electorally than the Sanders or the progressive Democrats. Distinct from that is a question of who has the power at the moment in in Congress. And the progressives don't have the power, but they have an important role to play, a significant role to play now that infrastructure looks like it's going to pass the Senate because basically the president needs progressives on his side to get his bigger budget, the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package through Congress. The progressives have a big role to play. So why would you kick the progressives in the shins on this housing moratorium right before you were going to ask them to potentially do some things they really aren't going to like in order to get your, you know, the heart of your domestic policy priorities through the Congress, because Nancy Pelosi has to manage the progressives to get both infrastructure through and the budget rec reconciliation package through. So it's a, it's a time for progressives to assert their power. And so they did. And that's why it seems like a pretty big unforced error here for Biden, who's known for a month that the Supreme Court said this. And he's not only said, can he not 
extend the moratorium. But Gene Sperling, who is in charge of getting uh, uh, recovery funds out the door, said specifically the CDC was asked, can you do it to those areas hardest hit by Delta? And the CDC said no. So, I mean, specifically, he asked about there's very much there's a way in which this feels very much like what Barack Obama used to say about DACA when he said, look, I've asked, I've asked, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And then he went ahead and did it um, for some not too dissimilar political reasons. Um, so uh, anyway, the progressives have uh, power at this moment. And one of the great and interesting dramas is also how they will carry that out. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said she has 10 progressives who won't vote for the budget in the House if it doesn't include certain provisions. That's sufficient to kill uh, or, you know, to have some sway on stopping that budget from going forward. Before we leave this, this is a really sad issue. It's a really sad issue because it's not it's it's victims on all sides. Eviction like ranks with the death in the family, with the, someone going to prison, with a loss of a job as a brutal form of change in life circumstance. It causes that much instability, that much disruption, that much suffering, especially for the young and the old. And it's not that people shouldn't be evicted. Like you have to have a system where you have, if some a tenant is hugely damaging and disruptive and causing chaos in a place and is making life miserable for for the person who owns a property or for the the people who are the neighbors. Like you do have to have a solution. It's just that when it's basically economic hardship, it is it's just a tragedy. It's just an utter tragedy. And it's there's really great reports and studies about how devastating this is for people when they are evicted. And at the same time, like the people who are the landlords are, for the most part, are not, they are not fat cats who are just, you know, driving their, their chauffeured uh, Hummers on top of, and, you know, crushing the dreams and hopes and toys of the people they're evicting. That's not, they're mostly, for the most part, they're people who are just, use have a, small second income off of something they're renting and they need they they have to keep paying the utilities they have to keep maintaining their building and without rent it's very hard for them to do it that's why the law the failure to to spend this 50 billion dollars this 46 billion dollars is so sad because it it is just causing suffering at every direction and you know it's an own goal as they as they say it shouldn't have happened it should not this should not be happening slate plus members you get to support the journalism that Slate does. You also get bonus stuff from us, notably bonus segments on the GabFest and also no ads on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And if you go to slate.com slash GabFest plus, you can subscribe today to become a member. It's only a dollar for the first month. And our topic, our Slate plus topic this week, we're going to talk about the Olympics as the Olympics fade away, as the Olympics have their final few days our favorite, least favorite Olympic moments. Are we glad the Olympics happened? Again, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to hear John Dickerson talk about his own career as a team handball coach. John Dickerson barred, barred from equestrian this year because he doped his horse. Any of those true, John? No. Okay. The hand, well, handball seems to be a sport that it was made up 10 minutes before everybody hit the floor. And so therefore the handball one seems the most true. I used to play that in high school at, at, at uh, St. Albans. We had during gym there, we'd play some team handball. I loved it. I always felt like if there were any sport that I could, that I could play at the Olympic level it was team handball, like whatever those particular skills were my skills. 
Well, I, I look forward to hearing more about that on Slate Plus, David. Yeah, definitely. We'll talk about that a lot. All right, let's go to our third topic. Andrea, where should vaccines be mandated? Uh, this is a tough question. I thought a lot about the vaccine mandate piece of things. And I'm going to say something that maybe is controversial. I'm not entirely sure that they should be at this point. And I say, and and I there's a lot of compelling, wonderful reasons that I'm completely wrong here. And I'm very much looking forward to both of you, uh, you know, telling me why I'm wrong. But the reason that I hesitate on vaccine mandates in general is my fear is that politically we are just too far gone as a country when it comes to this issue that anything we do to mandate vaccines actually makes the problem of getting people vaccinated that much worse. And I suppose I'm being pessimistic when I say that, again, I feel we're too far gone and making this a political issue that I think that it would have the opposite effect. And that's my concern. Though I'm, again, happy to talk about all the reasons that I'm completely wrong here. I don't think you're wrong. I think it's really interesting. I've, I think there must be a, uh, or we should coin one, an expression for this idea, which I think is, we've seen how hard it is to get policy ideas in into the mainstream, regardless of their reason and facts behind them. And if 14% of the country is absolutely dead set against vaccines, which is the number of the absolutely impenetrable shale of um, strata here in terms of who won't get vaccinated under any circumstance, I think we found it's very hard to break through. And even when you try, you create dangerous conditions. And I think we should be mindful of those dangerous conditions when throwing around the idea of mandates. Is shale impenetrable? I thought shale I think was it's, penetrable. I realized that I was really, I was in an absolute <laughs> metaphor lost woods there. And I was, I'm going to go frack that shale. I think shale is basically like, that shale. I think you can crumble shale like in your hand. So yeah. I think it's absolutely a huge <laughs> catastrophe. You could see me groping. <laughs> <laughs> the, so we do, we do see these mandates in places which are, Easy peasy mandate. So, you know, Facebook and Google are mandating vaccines in their white collar employees. And it's, it's that's no problem. I have a friend of mine who is a Google said, I think that they're mandating vaccines. And he told me that they already had a vaccination rate in the high 90 percent before the mandate. They don't need it. That's not the target. It's that the, the mandate, sir, can you can you mandate it for all government workers at any level, the federal state? local level, the whole military, can you compel teachers to to be vaccinated? Can you compel all students who are above age 12 to be vaccinated? We do. We do compel them. That is that is compelled already for the most part. But I hear you, Andrea, about the the blowback from a mandate is damaging. At the same time, the the suffering that people are enduring and the inconvenience that people are enduring is really profound. So if not a mandate, is there much, are there significantly more coercive measures that you can undertake? I mean, I sort of like these ideas of it's not a mandate, but if you want to go to the gym, you have to show proof of vaccination. Or it's not a mandate, but if you don't want to get vaccinated, you have to get tested every day and you have to pay for the test, maybe. 
or you have a higher insurance rate. Like, is, is that a better system, that kind of coercion, or even that is going to be too much? Absolutely. And I should say that I am talking about vaccine mandates, I suppose, on the government level and private businesses, I think, you know, can and should be in a much better, stronger position to, you know, require and mandate what they will. Um, and, and I should also say that, you know, I recognize, fully recognize the inconvenience and the in- enormous, you know, public health risk that comes without being um, vaccinated. And I certainly don't want to diminish that in my saying that it's hard for me to really get behind vaccine mandates from a government standpoint. As far as what is the motivating factor that will get people to do this? Well, first of all, I, I, what I guess I'm saying is I'm not sure that I think that requiring them to do it from the governmental level is going to be motivating. In fact, I think it could be um, dissuading for a lot of people. And I mean, I'm not sure. We've tried to see incentives when it for paying people or, you know, giveaways. And I think that's worked a little bit. To your point, probably having some sort of, you know, vaccine passports, if people do want to go to the gym, that will probably help, you know, incrementally tick along more people and get them to, you know, say, okay, I do want to participate in some of these services that I really like. And so it's worth it to me to get vaccinated. But I mean, barring that, I mean, I don't know, I keep thinking, do you go to uh, the social media companies or, you know, casinos or, you know, uh, employ an army of behavioral psychologists that can help us better understand what's the best carrot stick method to get people to do this? Um, Because I feel as though we've tried a few avenues uh, and it's just not simple here, though certainly there's been a lot more success in the EU. And it's because of some of the things that you said about, you know, you can't travel or go to certain places without these, you know, vaccine passports. They've seen in New York that this um, idea of a passport being required to get into restaurants and things is is actually is increasing, is working. Um, and the similar thing happened in France. Of course, a similar thing happened in France to what we were worried about, which is there were massive protests against not a mandate, but is a passport of a kind. But I think we all agree that like soft mandates where you incur where Tyson Foods said you can't work in the plant or come to the office unless you're vaccinated. So once corporations kick in, once you create the system where you either have to be vaccinated or tested all the time, I think that helps. It also appears that there seems to be some progress in the worst parts of the country, most of which are in the South. They, the 10 states with the lowest vaccination rates saw massive uptakes in in vaccinations for first first shots in the last week or so based on you know the fact that people were dying and and ICUs were uh, were or at least hospitals were filling up so there seems to be some evidence that fear is actually motivating some people in that category that's just above the 14% who said nothing can convince them to get vaccinated. And I guess the the final question to me is, is how much longer do we have to deal with this? Because in talking to Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, he basically said, you know, in a few weeks, everybody will have either been vaccinated or they will have gotten it because it's because Delta is so virulent. And so it's going to essentially burn itself out. And he says there are already in those in the states that are hardest hit, even though the numbers are increasing, the rate of growth is slowing, which is the which is the first thing you see before you reach the top of the hill and things start to come down. Um, So it could be that we're three to four and then the question is, that will coincide with full FDA approval, which is supposed to happen around a Labor Day, which will kick in a bunch of you know existing mandates for things like measles and mumps. If the FDA says this is approved, I think that 
COVID comes in under that. So then it becomes, how do we, do people get the COVID shot the way they get the flu shot? And do we go through that every year, which seems likely? Yes. I mean, it sounds like it'll be endemic. Well, I have from your mouth to God's ears, John, I hope that's the case. That would be great if it, if there are three to four weeks and then it recedes. I want to close with a question, which is mostly for you, John, because you were such a scholar of of the 20th century and American oh, politics of the 20th century and the politics and the kind of the consensus politics that existed. So I sit sometimes and seethe and say to myself, my goodness, this could have been a universal vaccination program. If Donald Trump and the conservatives had decided, like, let's claim this, let us, let's seize on this. Let's talk about how quickly we've done this vaccination and let's push the hell out of this and take credit for it that this could have not been politicized. Instead, we had, for essentially political reasons, we had this willful, murderous effort of conservative media and politicians and Trump himself and cultural figures that has discouraged people, misled people, deceived people, and caused death at a cataclysmic scale. That's not the only reason why there's death at a cataclysmic scale. It's not the only reason why people are vac- aren't vaccinated. It's that conservative commentators are not the reason that a lot of people are, are not being vaccinated. But it is a reason that a significant chunk of Americans have declined. And, it, and, it, and certainly it is a reason why there's no national consensus about it in the way there was a national consensus about for the polio vaccine, say. But I wonder, am I deluding myself to think that it actually could have been universalized and nationalized and made it totally unpartisan? Um, or ha- had it been seized on by Trump, would Democrats be, would Democrats have revolted and not gotten vaccinated because they would have said, oh, this is a Trump vaccine. We can't trust it. It's not FDA final approval, blah, blah, blah. I think just on the very final point you make, there was some playing footsie with that, even from Kamala Harris. Now, let's not let's hasten quickly to add that Kamala Harris playing a little footsie with that idea during a debate is nothing like the sustained effort to sow distrust in the vaccine that has gone on on the right in the country. What is extraordinary to me is the point you made about about President Trump. When you think of past presidents um, and disasters, there is a tradition. It's kind of like the last tradition that that President Trump is breaking, even though he's out of office, of past presidents rushing in to help in catastrophes. So it happened in Haiti. It happened after the tsunami in Japan. Presidents Bush, both of them, and Clinton worked together, uh, even though they had been bitter rivals, all the Bushes and the Clintons. President Obama has, has joined in that. So here you have an ongoing disaster, which is the coronavirus and the Delta variant killing people. Um, And it's happening not in some foreign distant land, but in America. And the person who has arguably the most power with the group that is most in danger, which is to say the white men who aren't getting vaccinated, who voted for Donald Trump, the person who has the most sway over them isn't is barely saying boo. I mean, President Trump in his long rallies does say I think you should get vaccinated, but I believe in freedom, too. So that's not saying nothing, but it is asymptotic if you are trying to get as close to nothing as possible and still do something. And the fact that he's not taking, even for base political reasons, to say, I created Operation Warp Speed. I'm why you have these vaccines. Go get them and 
you know, that he's not doing that for political reasons. I mean, the reason he's not is because a cultural view has has grown up that he's sort of quasi contributed to with his mask, with his opinions about mask and covid all during the course of the pandemic. So he's in a fix of his own making, which is that he doesn't want to undermine his political standing by 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 advocating for something that he could take some credible claim for. Nevertheless, uh, the fact that he isn't doing is doing it is extraordinary. So, yeah, I think we're too broken to have a national. And part of that bro- brokenness has to do with the general distrust of of institutions that has that we've been in the slide we've been in since the Vietnam War and, and Watergate. So, I mean, there are longer trends here, too. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are, have used your vaccine passport to get into a bar. Although you're in Texas, Andre, you, you can you don't need any vaccine passport. In fact, you're probably barred from having a vaccine passport. But when you're there having a cocktail, what are you going to be chattering about this week? Well, I know that we have already talked a bit about housing, um, at least with regards to eviction. But I will also be chattering about housing in a different way, which is a huge topic of conversation. Um, I think across the nation, you know, the housing supply uh, has been something that we've been talking about. But it's specifically a big conversation here in Austin, which has seen... Uh, home prices increased 42% year over year to $575,000, which maybe for DC and New York sounds quaint, but I promise you is a huge increase here. Um, and so a couple of stories uh, that I have paid attention to in the last week was there was a great Planet Money episode called Three Reasons for the Housing Shortage that really explains kind of why we're seeing such an intense housing market. And in that episode, uh, one expert said that she didn't see the housing shortage ending for the next decade, which was pretty alarming to hear. And then there's one other story that I think was um, really good. It was a scathing article in Vox titled, Homeownership Can Bring Out the Worst in You. And I can let you imagine what that story is about. Um, so those are things I'd be chattering about. I'm a renter now, so I'm, I want to believe that. But what's the answer? <laughs> Well, so much of it is about nimbyism and that when you own a home, you become homeowner that you might have as a renter reviled, uh, you know, so you have real incentive because you have great equity um, and a big ownership stake in a piece of land to protect that piece of land to keep it at its greatest value. So you end up opposing development and housing projects or bus lines or, you know, all of the great infrastructure, um, you know, uh, projects that make a city, you know, great and walkable and livable. And uh, but as a homeowner, you have incentive to not support those things. That chatter is my favorite chatter because I was yesterday totally uh, confused and trying to figure out what I mean, I get a lot of the inputs for for housing prices right now, but I feel like I have no clear handle on the full picture. And now I know exactly what to do to get a handle on it. So thank you for that. John, what is your chatter? My chatter is totally frivolous, but important. So we've been taking walks recently Whoa. Out, out in nature. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, you so is my, that like a thing you discovered in the it pandemic? Is, it is. So, uh, well, we just had occasion to take walks in in a way. Actually, we always take walks in the city, but that's quite different than than being out in um, in nature. And two apps I am here to recommend for you. One is called Picture This, which allows you to go walk by any tree. Uh, it's more than trees, but we mostly use it with trees. And take a picture of the tree, and it will. It's Shazam for trees, basically. Yes. It will tell you what kind of tree you have. And the, for me, frankly, the difference between an ash and a walnut is very hard to figure out. And so that's really great. Then 
reading Jason Kotke's amazingly amazing website, kotke.org, which we've praised perhaps more than anything else on this show, uh, informed me yesterday that there is a bird app called Merlin, which is Shazam for birds. So when you hear some amazing birds song and you um, stop and wonder what it is, you turn on this app and it will tell you what kind of bird is making that bird song. It's incredibly good at it. I did. I used it last night. Um, uh, anyway, so those are my two things that you should have on your hike when you're hiking. It's always a tension about bringing your phone, but um, nevertheless, those would make it worthwhile. Can you Shazam me? <laughs> uh, no. Yes, that's that's a Phil Collins song. Um, that, <laughs> I use a different one of those tree apps. I use one called Seek. And I was using it yesterday, and I, because there's these trees that have grown up on this path near my apartment, and they are, they look like weeds, but they're these trees, and I was like, this is not good. And, and indeed, it's some tree called a princess tree, which grows 15 feet a year. It's an invasive tree. 15 feet a year? Is that more than bamboo? I don't know. I feel like bamboo is, right now, like the entire forests of bamboo have grown up during the course of this show. Yeah, Probably. Probably that's right. Probably uh, just during my digression here. I uh, I discovered the white the white mulberry. Turns out is a very cool looking thing. And I also learned that King James tried to increase the silk trade by planting mulberries, but he planted the wrong kind, and so it, it didn't work for the um, for the uh, silkworms. But it became a place of assignations in in England. But, um, Meet under the mulberry behind the mulberry bush, which I thought was then where the phrase chasing someone around the mulberry bush came from, but it didn't. But we could is say that, that why it did. there's so many streets in Mulberry Street that Dr. Seuss wrote that now canceled book about. I don't know. Is because of all the mulberry trees. Hmm. Interesting. My chatter, I was going to chatter something I read on, on Kotke's blog, but I'm not going to because. Wait, I'll what are you going to chatter? Well, I'll do it. Fine. I read on Jason Kotke's blog about this really interesting book by Angie Schmidt called Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America, which had an, an incredible statistic in it, which is that pedestrian deaths in the U.S. have risen 50% in the last decade. They have gone from about 4,000 a year to more than 6,000 a year. And after having, they'd gone in decline, they declined for a long time. And then in the past decade, they've shot right up. And the reasons have mostly to do with SUVs and the SUVs blocking people's vision and the power of SUVs. And it's disastrous. It's thousands and thousands of people are dying because of it. But I, my actual chatter was, it's going to be about this, my new favorite Twitter account, which is at frog and toad bot. So there's these incredible books about these two friends. One's a frog, one's a toad. Uh, it's basically the odd couple. Uh, the frog is frog is um, frog is Oscar and toad is Felix. Maybe or maybe I'm not sure. But it's the odd couple, and they're these two male friends. They love each other, and they just are always up to all kinds of adventures. And frog is always being playful and fun, and toad is neurotic and just full of anxiety and this is a bot that just tweets out lines from that those books and every single one is wonderful every the book every single line that those books are fantastic and you should they're maybe my favorite children's books of all so at frog and toad bot check it out also gavx listeners i am going to traverse city michigan in a couple of weeks 
to work for a week. So what should I do in Traverse City and around Traverse City? What to do, what to see, where to eat? Please tweet it to me at at SlateGabFest or at David Plotz. Now, to listener chatter, you guys send us so many good chatters to at SlateGabFest. Please keep them coming. Tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest. This week, the chatter comes to us from Noah Lieberman, and Noah is telling us about an article in Vice that's a really sad, depressing article. Hi, GabFest. My chatter this week is a piece in Vice by David Gilbert titled, I'm a Parkland shooting survivor. QAnon convinced my dad it was all a hoax. The piece is an interview with a recent graduate of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, a member of the last graduating class to survive the tragic mass shooting of 2018. In it, the student describes how his previously supportive and empathetic father fell down a rabbit hole of right-wing conspiracies after joining anti-lockdown forums online last year. These forums eventually led to him joining the QAnon movement. The student now fears harassment from his father who is convinced that his son and all his classmates are crisis actors of the deep state. It is a really harrowing piece about both the sickening effect these forums can have on rational people, causing them to disbelieve their own lived experience, and also the emotional toll it has on their family members, who lose their loved ones to these dangerous conspiracies. Yeah, that was pretty grim. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced today by Shana Roth, who is sitting in for Jocelyn, who is on vacation. Also a well-earned vacation. All vacations on the GabFest are well-earned, except mine, which are not well-earned at all. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Andrea Valdez and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So we're going to talk about the Olympics. I've been watching a ton. Have you guys been watching? So much. I've loved it. I've been so excited about the Olympics. I'm excited about this. Slate Plus. John, have you been watching? Well, I don't want to... I don't want to be a downer. Uh, I have been watching, but not as much as I have wanted to watch because we, we've we been basically trying to navigate the, the app for watching it, and it's incredibly frustrating. We don't have terrestrial TV anymore. So, Andrea, what? Uh, let's talk about some of our best and worst moments, new favorite and least favorite sports. I take it you're glad the Olympics happened, despite the, the yeah. fact that I, I mean, most of I, Japan does not want them to happen. Yeah, and I, I want to be sensitive to that, and I understand that there's, you know, many valid concerns for why this, you know, could have been really disastrous for the country. You know, that said, I suppose that selfishly, I have really greatly enjoyed the Olympics. You know, after the last year and a half, I really wanted to feel, you know, camaraderie with fellow Americans, you know, with the world around, you know, sport. I find the Olympics to be something that I watch, you know, every Olympics. I'm partial to the Summer Olympics. Winter is great, too. Uh, And so I was really excited that they were happening. And I think that we've had so many great moments come out of this one. I feel like I have half a dozen. I don't want to steal everything. I guess I'll start with my very favorite, and then I'll let you all talk about your own favorite moments. But for me, one of my favorite moments was... And it's actually, I'm sure for her, probably not the greatest moment, but the 
breaststroke swimmer, uh, Lydia Jacoby. She's 17 years old. She's from Alaska. She won the 100 meter breaststroke, uh, won the gold. Uh, but then later she participated in the 400 meter relay and her, she jumps in the water and her goggles slip down on her face and she just forges ahead and continues swimming her part of the relay. And it was really, so distressing to watch in, you know, you know, as it was happening on TV, because you just think, oh, God, you're, you wait your whole life to do something like this, and your goggles slip off. I mean, just how terrible is it? And then they told, you know, the announcers talk about she got the goggles from another former Olympic swimmer who gave them to her when she was like 13 years old. So they were special goggles from another former Olympian. And, you know, ultimately, the uh, team placed fifth, I think the US uh, came in fifth in that event. But it was one of those things where you just see, I mean, she just went for it and just kept going and just what a pro you have to be and at that age to just not let something like this distract you or, or stop you and you just keep forging ahead. I found it so inspiring and I loved it. Oh, I didn't see that. That's great. John, do you have a favorite, least favorite moment? Well, I agree. There are lots of favorite moments. And and one of the great things is that um, I mean, we talked about this before about like your common connection to other human beings in this time of isolation and in this time of being given so many examples of people behaving like dogs, you see people who are deeply admirable, committing incredible acts of endurance and grace. And so, and I'm going to butcher all these names, but um, Isaiah Jewett of the U.S. and Nigel Amos of Botswana, they crashed into each other during a race and you know, instead of like going at each other's throats, they they basically walked to the finish line together. Um, the two, the Italian and the Qatari, oh, uh, oh, uh, so uh, high jumpers yeah. who decided to share the gold medal. I mean, oh. that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash Gabfest Plus to become a member today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.